Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to this edition of Through Conversations podcast, where Cesar Coltemo Garcia Hernandez joins us. Cesar is a professor of law at the University of Denver and an immigration lawyer. He runs the blog Creemigration.com and regularly speaks on immigration issues. He has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, NPR, the BBC, and many other media outlets. He is also the writer of the book Migrating to Prison, America's Obsession with Locking Up Immigrants. This book, as you will hear me say a lot of times during this episode, sheds the light on an issue everyone is familiar with, yet few understand the huge implications this can have on someone's life, immigration policy. Professor Garcia Hernandez takes a historical approach to understand immigration policy and, more specifically, the incarceration of immigrants. As he argues, this is not a new issue, and the past can teach us a lot about how we got to the point where roughly 400,000 people, from babies to the elderly, now spend some time in prison. In this episode, we talk about how many aspects immigration policy has, such as the power of a passport, and how it can have such an impact in how one's life takes shape from having a stable life to being the reason of being incarcerated, the industrial prison complex, Obama's administration and its impact on the search of immigrants being incarcerated, Trump's influence in opening the Pandora's box of immigration policy, the Cold War and its repercussions on immigration reform, and much more. I am certain that you will find this episode as relevant as it can get when it comes to the issue we face as a society to solve the immigration enigma. Even though we hear all day about immigration, few truly understand how complex this issue is, and perhaps most importantly, why we need to talk about it more. The reason is people. At the end of the day, human beings, such as you and me, are being locked up and facing unimaginable amounts of adversity, just because they wanted to move to another place on the hopes of a better future. What's more, the government and the public can do something about it, only if we can all internalize that this issue is more than just policy and a hot topic. It can also result in finishing with one's hopes for a better future. I have many thoughts about this issue, but I won't say them right now, as I can't wait for you to listen to a true expert on this issue, Cesar Cautemo Garcia Hernandez. I will write a blog about my thoughts on this issue, which you can find at throughconversations.com after the, this episode is live. I hope you enjoy. And now, with you, Cesar Cautemo Garcia Hernandez. Professor, it is amazing to have you here. I'm very excited and I'm thrilled because it is, it, it's, uh, it's an issue that it's increasing right now and the public discourse, perhaps more in Mexico right now, from because of all the immigration that's happening and we're being like the center of the issue right now. Before we start, I wanted to ask you, what is it about this issue that particularly touches your, that makes you um, become interested in it? Why is it important to you, immigration? Right. So thank you so much, Alex, for having me on, on the podcast. It's really a pleasure to be here. I wanted to get your invitation. Um, the, the, the reason why I, I became interested in the, the way that the U.S., um, the United States uh, locks up so many migrants is um, in large part because of my own 
personal history. I was born and raised uh, along the border in South Texas, right? Um, uh, in McAllen, um, so closest to, to Reynosa. And, um, and um, so my, my, my family is originally from, from Mexico. My mom's from, from Querétaro. Um, and so for me, my, my entire life um, has been one about uh, that has turned on existence on the border. As being in part in the United States, being in part in Mexico, um, and 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 in the 40 years of my life, um, I've seen how the border has transformed, and how how policing the border has transformed, and has transformed, and how it's had um, real life consequences for people who are not all that different from me. Um, and and so for me, this is very much a, a, a personal a personal story, um, uh, as much as it is a story about. Um, the work I've done as a lawyer, the research I've done as a as a academic, um, and uh, and so there's there's I think uh, there's there's part of me in this book in migrating to prison that's um that's intellectual part of me that's just my 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 per- my personal um, experience um, on this planet. Yeah, well, um, one thing that. It is quite clear in the book, migrating from uh, to prison, America's obsession with locking immigrants. Uh, it is quite strong, the fact that, you, you, this is a quote from you, you say that the only difference between you and w- someone who is in prison right now, it's a uh, passport, it's residence. It's, so that's quite strong. What do you think? Should this be an issue should we treat this issue as a moral issue or should we treat it as, as a legal issue? How, how should we take an approach in regarding immigration? Yeah. Well, well, I think when it comes to, when it comes to the law, law and morality are not two separate things. Uh, law and morality are wrapped up in, in one another. And sometimes the law reflects morality and sometimes it doesn't reflect morality, but, but, but it's, 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 a, it's a constant contest between um, which version of morality. I tell my students, look, If you're not thinking, if you're only thinking about what the law d- allows you to do now or doesn't allow you to do right now, then, then 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 I promise you that somebody else is thinking about what the law should do or what the law should should prohibit, right? And and so you need to think about which version of morality you want the law to reflect because it's always going to reflect a version of morality and maybe it's your version or maybe it's somebody else's version and. You know, to be frank, I want it to be my version of morality, not somebody else's version of, of, of morality. I would, you know, put that out there. Um, so, so for, for me, the story of, of, of the way that the United States goes about imprisoning migrants on, on a really a quite large scale is, is, is one that is um, certainly uh, very much rooted in, in, in morality and in the sense of the United States. Um, having a vision of itself as being a country full of exceptional people, right? Going back to this notion of manifest destiny, uh, that, the, that, the, that this land was empty of inhabitants, and here we came, or here, here, here these, these Europeans came and started to spread across from, from the East Coast to the West Coast, and whoever was there um, would just need to get out of the way, right? Um, and that, that sense of exceptionalism hasn't, hasn't changed. And I think a lot of times um, in immigration law in, 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 in the United States, which is certainly not, um, not, not unique to the United States, but it's, it's, sort of, it's my focus, it's what I know best. Um, immigration law tends to take the view that people who, want, who, 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 who were not born in the United States but want to become members of this political community need to be really quite exceptional. They can't do the things that most of us who just happen to be born into our United States citizenship do all the time. And, 
don't suffer the consequence of being banished to someplace, someplace else, someplace that is not your home, someplace that maybe has never been your home in which a language is spoken that maybe you don't speak a single word of it. Yeah. One of the things that um, American citizens and as well as immigrants can do Um, they can become U.S. soldiers. And you talk about this issue in your book. There's this, Jerry's case. He was a veteran who, well, what's the best way of showing your love to a country? And you argue it. It's going and signing up for the army, for the U.S. army. And amazingly, so I could not believe it while I was listening to it. By the way, your narrator in the audiobook was, he did an amazing job. Good. Yeah, and Timothy, I think his his name is. Yeah. And, well, to, to get to the point, Jerry's case was quite strong. So how come U.S. veterans can be deported? How how does this happen? Why does this happen? Right, be because as I, write in, I, as I write in the book, when it comes to, to immigration uh, uh, law, what matters is not the heart, it, it's the passport. And, and Jerry Armijo, who I talked about, Gerardo Armijo is his name, he goes by Jerry. Um, he, he, his story is really powerful to me personally because there are so many similarities between his life and my life. Um, we were both born in, in uh, we were both raised in, in South Texas. We, we grew up in, in South Texas in, in what is a heavily Mexican community. Spanish is very common. Right? In, in his household, his parents spoke Spanish. In my household, my parents spoke Spanish. Um, and... And, 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 and so after, um, so we were both raised in that community, but after I finished high school, I went off to college and Jerry went off to the United States army and he got, a, he, he was, um, he was sent to Iraq to go fight a war on behalf of the United States. And one day he went over a bomb and, um, uh, an uh, um, uh, explosive device that, that tore right through the tank. And it injured him. It injured his leg and it caused him um, trauma. So he got sent back to Texas to, to recover. And he did not get the help that he needed. And so he, he turned to drugs. And at some point, the police caught up with him. And he was going through a court system or a special program in the, in the local state court that's designed specifically for veterans. Because the courts there and in other places in the United States recognize that veterans a lot of times suffer physical and psychological injuries that when they get come back to the United States, those show up in, in really poor ways, right? Violence, drug use, all kinds of, um, you know, alcoholism, all kinds of, of problems that, that are crimes, that, that show up as crimes. But because of their service to the United States, because of their willingness to sacrifice their own lives um, on behalf of the United States, we give them a special, a, we've created special judicial proceedings to help them, to help them avoid prison and to get, you know, the, the, the help that, they, that they, they should have received before, but hadn't. Well, Jerry was going through that program and he was doing everything that the court asked him to do. And then one day he stopped showing up and he stopped showing up because the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency had arrested him and sent him to one of its local uh, immigration prisons and was trying to, to deport him. And the reason why they could do that was because Jerry was born in Mexico. Um, he was, uh, I, I think it was um, uh, in, in Rio Bravo, if, if I'm not mistaken. So very close to the border, um, just like I was born very close to the border. Only my mother was north of the Rio Grande, right, north of the Rio Bravo, when I was born and, and his mother was south. 
Um, but after that, our lives sort of looked the same, except for the fact that I never volunteered to risk my life on behalf of the United States Army, and Jerry did. And yet my place in the United States is a lot more secure than Jerry's is. And, and that seems to me as fundamentally problematic. If we're willing to trust him with a, with, with a, with a, with a U.S. Army tank, um, then I don't think that the very same United States government should turn around and say, well, you know, because one day you were riding around in a tank and you happened to go over a bomb, right, um, then the, the, that, that led to another thing, which led to another thing, and all of a sudden you're a criminal alien, so we're going to send you back to a country that you, know, you haven't lived in since you were one year old. Wow, that's, that, that, that's an, quite striking. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it, and right now I can't still believe it that that happens. As I said, it is quite the strongest evidence someone can propose is establishing himself as a U.S. soldier, and that that should be that should be quite uh, that that needs to be spoken more about. And yeah, and I think I think for me for me, Alex, part of part of what that that reveals is is how do we go about defining who gets to who gets to claim membership in this political community that we call the United States. Right. Is it is it just because of where your mother happened to be when you were born? Right? I had nothing to do over, about that. I like to think that the reason I belong in the United States is because everything I've done since then. Right? I've, I've been a good member of, of, uh, of, of the various communities. Right. I'm, I'm, I, I try to be a good a good a good a family member. And I've and I've worked hard in school and I try to now as a professional, I, I try to teach my students as well as I can to be lawyers, right? And, and, and I, I try to do good work just sort of generally and, and participate in, in, in the, the, the political um, um, and nature of, of this democracy. And, it's, and, 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 the, and the piece of paper that I have that says I was born in Texas, I mean, that's, it's not even on a wall, right? It's, a, it's that insignificant but it has in, in my life on a daily basis, but it's the foundation for everything else, right? It's the thing that protects me from the fate that Jerry suffers. And it's not because um, this Jerry, Jerry didn't um, commit a crime because he's, 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 he's a permanent resident of the United States. He's a green card holder. He, he committed a crime because he decided to go to war on behalf of the United States and he got injured and, and then he didn't get the medical care that he needed. And yeah, He made some bad decisions after that. But you know what? We all make bad decisions, right? And, and for him, it leads to being locked up by immigration officials on the verge of getting deported. And for most of us um, who are U.S. citizens, it doesn't, it doesn't ever get to, to, to that level. Yeah, one, one of the things that I loved in your book is that you argue that it is impossible to put in two boxes, defining two boxes, human, humans and people. In a good box, in a bad box. Why should it be different with immigrants? Why are we treating this issue as good immigrants or bad immigrants? That's an impossible endeavor. And one of the things that strikes me as counterintuitive, in a sense of the, of the discourse that we're seeing from politicians such as Donald Trump or you know, um, news networks that say that immigrants are rapists, are bad people who come into a community and do all kinds of harms. And you said that actually most of migrants create communities in their cities, create impactful um, 
activities and they create positive change in their lives. So how is it possible? And, and, and I want to get you, I want to listen to this carefully. Why is it possible that there is a dissonance between what's actually happening with migrants and the civil discourse uh, in terms of our politicians and news cycles and news media? Well, because I think migrants are easily demonized. They're easy, easy to, to, to paint as people who live someplace else and act like, a, like, like something else, right? who aren't like me. Right? And for many people in the United States who are sympathetic to the kind of discourse that we hear from Donald Trump and, and, other, and, and other politicians of his, of, his, um, of his particular ideological perspective, um, is that it, 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 it is that they are they think of themselves as somehow fundamentally different from from immigrants and I think for me that's one of the reasons why it is that I that I um, um, wrote migrating to prison because I don't view myself as fundamentally different from the clients who I helped get out of prison I don't view myself as fundamentally different from a kid like Diego Rivera Osorio right, who I who I write about in the very beginning of the book who who arrives from Honduras when he's one year old and, and spends spent 650 nights in an immigration prison in, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, on, uh, and, and, and on the contrary, you know, when I think of, of Diego, of, of Diego I, think, I think of my own life. When I think of Diego's mother, Wendy, I think of my own mother who came to the United States. Right? Um, when I think of Jerry, I think of me. Right? And, and, and so, so those, the, the connection um, is, 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 is much more direct for, for, for somebody like, like me. Um, than it is, I think, for lots of, of people who who find themselves attracted to the kind of um, racist discourse that we hear from 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 President Trump and 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 others. Um, but I think it's also important to note that it's that racist di discourse um, um, doesn't how have to be as abrasive, as angry, as 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 uncouth as as Trump makes it. Um, uh, I, I make the point in 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 migrating the prison that under President Obama we had more people locked up than ever before until President Trump, right? Um, and and President Obama wasn't in any way as a man like President Trump, right? He, he's a he's a nice nice guy, charismatic <laughs> guy. You want to listen to him? You want to have a beer with him? Um, I certainly do, um, but that <laughs> Me doesn't too. mean that his policies were fundamentally di different when it comes to, to 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 the use of of, of prisons to enforce immigration law. And so I think um, I think we have to be very very um, careful not to be lured by um, the attractiveness of of a, of a messenger or the unattractiveness of a particular messenger. We have to look a little bit harder and, and take a little bit more perspective. And that's one of the things that I, I, I tried to help readers do in, in migrating to prison. Yeah, definitely. That's that's another point I wanted to touch. Uh, I always thought Obama as being the greatest president. You know, after Trump, there could not be, you know, any comparison between Obama and Trump. And it your book shed a light on quite a, a few things that are strong regarding immigration. Perhaps one of those uh, is that the fact that the immigrant prisoners rose to an all-time high during Obama's presidency. So why is it that this, his assertiveness and, you know, his speeches wouldn't strike us as, as dangerous towards immigrants? And in fact, they were kind of dangerous for them. No, they were certainly very dangerous. And once people get locked up, what we what we see is that lots of times they go through unspeakable amounts of of, of violence and trauma, from sexual assaults, rapes to 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 death. I write about one one man named Kamiar Samimi who 
who had lived in the United States for 40 years. He, he, he was a lawful permanent resident. He had a green card. Um, and and um, he gets arrested in uh, um, actually not very far from, from Denver, from where I live. And, um, and he gets sent to this private prison in, in, in suburban Denver. And in two weeks, two weeks later, he's dead. Right. Um, this, this was under President Obama. This is not under President, President Trump. So, so I think, I think, um, that, that part of the story of immigration prisons, um, immigration law enforcement is something that is not only overlooked, but it's also a big part of the motivation for me in writing this book. I spent eight years being very critical of the Obama administration. And when I would talk about the fact that we were seeing enormous numbers of migrants being being imprisoned just while we're just for the sake of enforcing immigration law i couldn't get people to, to have that conversation with me right it was like i would just talk i would, I would say these things say these things say these things and, and and oftentimes it was just people just thought i was exaggerating or making things up right um and and so if there's a positive aspect to the trump presidency it's that um people are open to this conversation now um, and, and, and so I try to use this moment, not as just a way to criticize the Trump administration. And, and I certainly do that. There's no shortage of opportunities or reasons to do that. Um, but also as a way of opening up the fact that, you know, Trump didn't just, Trump likes to take credit for all of the really heavy handed approaches to immigrants that, that the federal government uh um is using under his under his uh, administration um but but it's not accurate i mean the, to say that he just invented these things out of nowhere right we've been doing some version of this for a long time the the, the federal government isn't donald trump right um the federal government is an enormous entity um, that that um, builds on itself year after year, and this what we see now isn't coming out of nowhere. I think it's important for people to re- realize that, to know that history, so that we're not um, misguided into believing that the very day after Trump leaves the White House, things are going to be radically different or radically better than they are now. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And as you said, Trump's administration has opened the Pandora's box, no? And what's happening in real life and with immigrants. And I want to get into, well, the prison infrastructure, what you argue. There's there, there's a saying, there's something written in a book that, that, that says that there's um, immigration industrial complex. And you talk about it and you... What what is this and how how did it begin? How did this immigration prison system started and who has been favored by this system? Yeah, well, the the uh, there's an enormous amount of uh, political and financial benefit to imprisoning migrants. Um, let me talk first about the financial benefit. So the the most the most um, obvious um, um, examples are the private prison corporations. That are heavily invested in immigration prisons. They they rely um, enormously on contracts with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency and the U.S. Marshal Service to um, to to for the revenue. So they 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 build prisons or they operate prisons and um, and then they they fill them with with immigration prisoners on behalf of the federal government and the federal government pays them um, quite well to to do that. Um, the, 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 the tricky part is, of course, that with, as with any, any corporation, any business, you try to keep costs down and revenue high. 
cost down when it comes to 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 running a prison means you're going to cut costs in places like staffing, um, like health medical care. And so this is why we see that so often there are problems with the medical care that people who are in, in, in locked up receive. And, um, and, and, and a big part of why we, it is that we, um, we see even children who, who are dying in um, some of these facilities from entirely preventable um, uh, um, uh, problems that just require medical care. Uh, medical care that is available in the United States, um, but you know we'll stick some of these facilities in the middle of nowhere, right? in very rural parts of Arizona or Texas, where getting to a hospital is hard, where getting doctors into your facility is, is next to impossible. Um, and then on the political side of things, you know politicians have gotten to the point where they view um, uh, they view immigration prisons as as, um, as as free jobs essentially, as costless jobs. Um, this is, these are facilities that oh, will oftentimes need to employ 200 or 300 people. And if you stick them in a place like I write about um, Milan, Milan, New Mexico, um, about, about an hour or so um, away from outside of Albuquerque, this is one of the poorest parts of one of the poorest states in the United States. Um, jobs are hard to come by there. And so there's a 200 person um, employer um, that um, is an enormous uh, um, uh, presence in the community. So when the federal government announced, as it did a few years ago, that it was going to cut off, end its contract with that um, private prison, the local elected officials jumped into action to try to get another client, to get another customer for this private corporation because their constituents rely on it for for jobs. So the so the politicians, the politicians know that if that that prison closes, you know, their constituents are going to be upset, right? Um, and so they view it as a DOS program. But of course, there are many ways of employing people in out-of-the-way locations. Prisons are, are, are one, um, but there are other economic development strategies available that don't re- require, you know, locking up, locking up uh, people who, who, who you know, dared to come to the United States. Yeah. And two things. The, the... One of those, one of the, the things that you talk about is uh, the the people who are being um, imprisoned also are being uh, they're receiving a, a compensation for their work. Uh, they're working for a company. How does that work? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the the um, federal government and the private prison corporations say that they're volunteering. These are voluntary work wow. programs. They, they're called, which is why. Um, the these inmates um, get paid as as low as, as one dollar a day, right? One dollar a day to cook meals or clean the hallways or the bathrooms in the facilities. That obviously that helps keep costs down, right? You're never going to hire somebody to come into a prison from outside for one dollar a day. First of all, it's illegal, right? In the United States, that the, the minimum wage is well above that. So yeah, you know, that's just that would violate um, uh, labor labor laws. Um, but because they call it voluntary, they say, well, people are given this opportunity. Well, there, there are a number of lawsuits around the country now in, in various courts that are making by by some of these inmates saying, look, they call it voluntary, but uh, they would threaten us with with disciplinary um, uh, um, uh, consequences if we said no to their request 
for um, for us for us to participate in their voluntary work program, meaning it wasn't really voluntary. You can call it whatever you want, but it didn't feel voluntary to us. And so we haven't, none of those lawsuits have yet gotten to the point where they, there's a final resolution, but they're all still making their way through the court systems and the private companies um, have a very clear incentive to to resist those as much as possible because you know they they're, they're not going to get any cheap they're not going to get cheaper labor than, than that by 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 putting up a I mean, hiring somebody from from outside yeah and the the, the main thing that is um moving this one of the ingra grains that is moving this system so much is the revenue system so my question right now would be would it improve the 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 scenario would improve if we change the private prison system to a public prison system Would you would you agree with that? Um, no, I think you would get the profit, uh, the 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 very direct profit um, motive out of out of the the uh, uh, the equation. Yeah, but you wouldn't you wouldn't. Um, I don't think you would necessarily see an improvement in the conditions. Nor do I think that you would necessarily see fewer people locked up um, because the politics But the political motives are still there. The political incentives for um, uh, local elected officials to have the federal government come in and run a prison um, is is still are still just as just as high um, because you're going to need just as many guards and just as many nurses um, at, um, if the facility is is run by a government entity or by um, a, a private company, maybe even more um, more staff. Um, but, uh, and, and we see, we, and we see, um, that in a lot of, um, a, a, a lot of communities, uh, uh, around the United States, it's actually the local government that runs the facility on behalf of the federal government. Um, so in Willacy County, which is one of, uh, one of the uh, places that I write about in, 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 in migrating to prison, um, Willacy County is in South Texas. Uh, the county seat is Raymondville, Texas. So this is um, close to Matamoros and Brownsville. Um, maybe 40 minutes um, north of Matamoros, and um, and and, and Willacy County um, Correctional Center, um, the facility there is actually owned um, by the local government, um, by the county government, but it's operated by a private prison corporation. The county has a contract with the private company to run the prison, and then the the prison company goes and gets the customer. So the prison company goes and gets the contract with the federal government. Federal government pays the private prison company. Private prison prison company then pays um, some of that to the local government, right? And so there's a financial stake there and there's a political stake there um, by, by, the, by the local governments. Um, and, and that's not gonna, that's not gonna disappear just just because you take out take the private prison corporation out of the out of the equation well um i keep thinking about well let's let's switch gears a bit towards um trying to to light let's show the evidence professor on who are actually migrating towards the united states because right now we're listening to trump's rhetoric especially regarding the ms-13 gang So let's shed a light on that. What's the evidence pointing towards? Who wants to migrate to the United States right now? Well, right now what we're seeing is, is an increase in the number of Central Americans, right? Folks who are fleeing from um, uh, places like Honduras, Estado, Guatemala. 
But we also see that you, know, you have to keep in mind that that when it comes to to who's who who can be imprisoned, who can uh, because they, the federal government thinks that they violate immigration law, that's everyone who came to the United States without the government's permission, and everyone who came to the United States with the government's permission. So when it comes to that enormous that overall picture, then yeah, we're looking at a, a, a lot of people from Mexico, but we're also looking at a lot of Europeans and Canadians, right? And and this is one of the fascinating stories for me about the 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 the, the racial dimension to immigration prison. We fill up our immigration prisons almost entirely with Mexicans and Central Americans, um, and and certainly there are lots of people from Mexico and lots of people from Central America who violate violate immigration law either because they came to the United States without the right permission or because they came here with permission and then they did something that, you know, people like Jerry Armijo, right, who, who might have violated immigration law later. But we could also fill them with Canadians and Western Europeans because those people have almost no problem coming to the United States legally, right? They don't even need a visa. Um, they're, 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 they're eligible for the visa, what's called the visa waiver program. They just have to have a passport, plane ticket, car, whatever. They just come to the United States. And, 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 but the idea is they're supposed to leave, right? They're supposed to, they come for, for 30 days, um, vacation, work, whatever. And then you go back, right? Well, what we know is a lot of them don't, a lot of them stay here. And when it comes to immigration law, it doesn't matter how you violate immigration law. You're still, if you violate immigration law, you're still deportable. You're still, you can still be imprisoned um, while we while we decide what to do with you. Um, and yet we see that the the, the State Department's own own reports tell us that people from from Canada and 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 and, and Western Europe are, are coming to the United States with permission and not leaving um, on the scale of, of six uh, six figures and over a hundred thousand people a year, right? Um, so we could fill our entire immigration prison system with those folks, but we don't. Right? And so I think a part of the story isn't just who's coming, who's potentially violating immigration law. It's why is it that we're targeting certain people for 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 prison um, and not other people, right? And that's the story of the way in which um, racism is it plays out in this particular enforcement decision making process. Yeah. There's certainly a, a a racist bias, an implicit bias happening here. And oh, another group that, that that you mentioned in the book are black migrants. And there is there's a, a statistic that you you talk about regarding the stigma of criminality with them. So what happens when 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 this group of migrants come to the United States? Yeah, well, we 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 see that my, black migrants in particular. Uh, from places from places like Jamaica, Haiti, um, but more recently from 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 various African countries as well, um, get easily um, um, uh, um, mixed up in the long-standing uh, racial politics of 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 the United States, which is always um, identifying African Americans as the bottom of the barrel, right? The people who we Um, we 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 think of as being prone to criminality, and and then you know we we've we've locked up generations of young African American men because of um, uh, participation in illicit drug activity. Um, in going back to the the Reagan years in, in the 1980s, um, so so when we build an immigration law system 
that um, turns on involvement with criminal activity, then effectively what we're doing is we're, we're, we're increasing the consequences of that criminal activity. And when we have a lot of policing in African-American communities and we criminalize um, um, uh, conduct um, that is uh, uh, that is that is happening both in in African American communities, but also in white communities. Um, but then police heavily in in African American communities, and it's not a surprise that we see that this proportionate number of the people who are who are who are getting thrown in immigration prisons are are African are, are rather than African American, but black black migrants. And so I always think of the fact that you know I've I've spent most of my adult life on college campuses, right? As a student, as a professor. Um, I work with 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 the college students all the time, and um, there's no shortage of 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 criminal activity on college campuses, right? Drugs, drugs being the the best example, but but also sadly, um, sexual abuse. Um, women are sexually abused in, in on college campuses all the time on a regular basis, and yet we don't see that the police is. Is, is is running through the college campuses trying to identify criminals, even though those people are doing exactly the same things that 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 we see African Americans getting uh, and, and Black migrants getting getting criminalized for on a regular basis. Yeah. So one of the the, the biggest factors that that um, influences immigration imprisonment has to be inequality. So. You, as you said, in college campuses, there are plenty of of crimes. That always happening, and one of the uh, you talk about one of those in the book, fake IDs running all over the page. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. quite interesting. Caught driving without a license, you know, that's also one of those. Um, yeah, I, it is deeply saddening to to think about how how unfortunate one has to be to you know be, be in the balance between. On an equal system, so you're, you're poor, then you're prone to to being imprisoned. You're rich, you're in a college campus, you're doing the exact exam, uh, same crime, and you're exempt from that. That's that's quite that's quite striking. Well, it it, it is and it is and it's not. It's problematic, but I think in the, it, it, we have to we have to take a very realistic approach to to law making and law enforcement, which is that it's always biased. Um, and, and, and in every context, right? One day, um, the, uh, President Trump will, will, will go on about how uh, you know, criminal aliens are subverting the rule of law, and the next day he'll 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 send out um, uh, a tweet about how how his 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 campaign manager, who was just convicted of lying to lying to the FBI, um, got a bad deal, right? Uh, this is this is not at all. This is not new to President Trump. We we saw a decade ago or so um, that um, a, a groups of of very wealthy, um, oftentimes quite well educated um, investment bankers almost brought down the global economy it, um, based out of you know, places like New York and. Um, And very few of them ever saw time behind uh, bars uh, for for that. Um, on the other hand, you know we see that in communities around the United States, people are getting locked up for 
possessing a small amount of, of, of marijuana, right? Or people like Jerry, right, who's getting who's getting blasted in Iraq and sent back and not getting the care that he needs and turns to drugs and alcohol. Then instead of treating his his problems like a medical problem, we treat it as a criminal problem, right? Um, as a failing on, on his part. And so we this is this is not um, this is not a news story um, at all. And I, I don't make the claim that I'm telling I'm saying I'm I'm making a, I'm identifying a, a new phenomenon. I'm only uh, I articulating in migrating the prison how it plays out in the context of imprisoning migrants specifically, um, because I think that's part of the story that's often overlooked. Yeah, definitely. And we, we could touch um, more of the history because it is quite important, such as Nixon's role in the increasing incarcerating system. But ironically, during that time, uh, you mentioned that there was a possibility of uh, eradicating the prison system. So how how did we fail doing that? <laughs> yeah, well, one of the fa the, 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 the parts of, of my prison, I think, is... is um, is most important to talk about is 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 not actually what we're doing now, but what we've done in the past. And and I think it's important because um, because it's some it's a part of our history that 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 most people who I talk to don't know about. And that is that in 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 from the middle of the 1950s to the end of the 1970s, um, the United States basically didn't um, imprison large numbers of of people. Um, on the contrary, in November of 1954. Um, the attorney general for President uh, Dwight Eisenhower um, actually announced the policy of closing down uh, many of the uh, immigration prisons that existed at the time, including, most importantly, one on Ellis Island in New York. And people think of Ellis Island, you know, most people know something about Ellis Island. And, and what we all think about is, well, it's the place where generations of people from Europe arrived first step foot in the United States. And, and that's true. It was that, but it was also an immigration prison. And as, as they say in the book, an immigration prison with an ironic view of the Statue of Liberty. Um, uh, one woman who uh, named El Nauf, who was detained there in the 1950s, um, she said it looked like like kennels to her, um, like, like, like like places where you would stick out dogs, right? And, um, and, 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 and yet the Eisenhower administration saw that um, locking up immigrants, treating immigrants in that way was actually having um, negative consequences for the United States on a global scale. You have to remember that in 1954, the Cold War was picking up, right? Um, the Soviet Union was rising in power. The United States and the Soviet Union had actually just fought a proxy war in Korea. Um, after the end of World War II, we'd actually gone into an actual military engagement there in, in, in Korea. Um, and, and, you know, the, the political, the global political order was very in, unstable at that, at that point. And so we needed allies. We needed friends. And one way of, of, of luring people to our side was to treat their citizens better than the way we had. And so the Eisenhower administration said, well, it's actually about money. Um, I think it's actually far more complicated than that. I think it's actually part of the, the Eisenhower administration's um, um, geopolitical strategy um, to, to wage the Cold War, um, to, to treat migrants more um, in a more friendly manner, and that includes not locking them up. Um, and and that, that, was, that, was, that was the U.S. policy for the next 25 years. Um, and, and that began to change in the late 70s and, and then more so in the 80s. Yeah. 
one of the things that also was rather counterintuitive while listening to your book was the fact that the Soviet Union shaped um, prison reform. That's I, I, ne I would never <laughs> would have never imagined that happening. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to when it comes to the the, the Cold War, any any nothing is off the table, right? <laughs> um, and we needed we needed friends yeah. and 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 treating treating the citizens of countries that we were trying to align with us better um was a way of of, of getting more friends on yeah. the global stage yeah right now that we're talking um during that time that 1950s um my family migrated um before just before or right around the the world second world war was happening they migrated from europe and they came to the united states and then they migrated to mexico and they established here um it is one of the things that while listening to it to your book was to to, to migrating to prison um, was quite strong to to listen the fact that a uh, high profile ice um, I think a worker or employee or he he was just about to become promoted he said that prison systems and imprisoning migrants actually is a is a humanitarian cause as they resemble summer camps. And you know what the mm -hmm. Nazis Nazis said regarding the the concentration camps back in the 1930s 1940s. They said while they were doing the tours and they were recording the the the, the concentration camps, they said it was a summer camp. So how can we open the eyes to to this harsh reality? Yeah, I think um, the uh, I think I think it's important to talk about what's happening um, inside of these facilities. Um, because, uh, but but in a way that isn't um, pinning blame on the Trump administration only. Yeah. Um, I think that, that that's an important part of of, of how we how we um, um, get people invested in what's happening um, is is not by is by pointing out sort of the bipartisan nature of this, um, and because then that makes it possible to I think identify um this 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 trend as something that's likely to to exist after president trump um but also by i think pointing out to the fact pointing out the fact that we do this now but we don't have to do this right i think the what the, the other place i find i find that people will shut down when they think well it's bad but hey we don't have a choice right we just have to sort of grin bare our teeth and say well That's just the way it has to be, um, and 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 part of why I try to emphasize that history from the 25-year history, more or less, from the 50s to the late 70s, is not because I want to say, look, this things were perfect then, like things were not perfect. This is the period of rampant discrimination. Right, 1954, the same year that the Eisenhower administration shut down these these prisons, was the same year as Operation Wetback. Right, where we rounded up Mexicans, including U.S. citizens of Mexican descent, and you know, deported people. Um, but it's a way of saying we can do things radically different if we choose to. We chose to do what we're doing now, and we can choose to do things in a radically different way. And so, for me, that's uh, this. This book is certainly there's a lot to be depressed about. Um, right, locking up little kids, locking up veterans. There's lots to be depressed about. But for me, fundamentally, there's a, there's a spirit of hopefulness in the book that comes from knowing, learning that we 
chose to do what we do now and we can choose to undo it. Um, the, the reality is that we built up this immigration prison system in, in my lifetime. Um, I'm 40 years old. So basically the exact period of time that I'm talking about is, is when is, 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 is my lifetime. So if we can build this up in my lifetime, I think we can, we can um, deconstruct it in my lifetime as well. And so I hope that by talking about the story in a way that gives us some ability to reflect not only on what's happening now, but what has happened in the past and, and it might give readers an opportunity to imagine um, a radically different way of moving forward. Yeah, that's one of the things that that I love the most about your book because you, you weren't shy of, of mentioning Uh, individual cases such as micro cases and huge ciphers and, and huge um, statistics, but you also um, you, you weren't shy of of shedding a light to the reality of what happened during your lifetime during regarding the prison system and immigration system um, imprisonment, and you also as you said right now there's hope there's something we can do so. I want to get into the the, the part of where, where we can shed the light to the hope of hopefulness of the of of the path going forward. So, what can we do from this side of the border in Mexico? What would you think should be done or can be done from here? Yeah, I actually think that the Mexican the, the Mexican government in particular has a has an important play a role to 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 play. In in the way that U.S. immigration law um, operates, and in particular, I think the 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 um, situation along the border with the uh, Mexican government, the Lopez Obrador administration, so, um, responsiveness to the Trump administration's decision to hold so many people in um, you know, what are essentially refugee camps in places like Matamoros and Tijuana um, has. I think it created a, a, a problematic um, consequence, which is that now what we're seeing is that um, prisons can get uh, are, are those camps um, in places that are you know, cities that are really quite dangerous for, for Central American migrants in particular, um, are being touted as the alternative to the prison, right? Um, and, and so the prison then becomes sort of the humanitarian gesture Right. Well, we can if you don't if the advocates in the U.S. are, are complaining about how bad the situation is in places like Tijuana and and, and, and Matamoros and, and Juarez. Well, the alternative is you got to get the Democrats to 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 in Congress to pay for more prisons in the United States and then we'll take them all. Right. Um, and and so I think I think actually the the that the 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 the, the Mexican role is is something Mexican government role is, is actually quite um, quite quite in, in important in in the development of, of U.S. immigration policy, even though it appears to be entirely domestic, yeah. at least with regard to prisons. Yeah, I agree. And uh, also another thing that you mention uh, in your book is uh, the the ability of the public to create change you, you mentioned several cases where the there was a public uproar and change things happened and things changed so do you think from both ends from both sides of sides of the border from mexico and the united states do you think the public can have a saying in this issue Look, i think i i, I have I, 
if I believe in, in, in democracy, then then I have to believe yeah. that the public has a, a powerful voice in the policies that our governments enact on our behalf. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and fundamentally, I am a, a Democrat. I am a small D Democrat um, who believes in, in, in the power of normal people to organize themselves to, to push politics in the way that reflect in a way that reflects their vision of morality, right? This is going back to what I teach my students about the, the law, the law will always reflect morality. And, and, and if you're not trying to make it your, reflect your version of morality, I, I guarantee that somebody else is trying to make it reflect their version of morality. Wow. It's the same thing about politics, right? If it's not going to reflect my version of, of morality, it's going to reflect somebody else's version of morality. So, so politics isn't something to escape from. Um, it's something to engage with, not because you think that you're going to win every time. You're not. But because you know that if you're not engaged, then you're just conceding um, the space for somebody else. Yeah. And uh, at, the, uh, at the last chapter of your book, you mentioned and you propose a solution, which is abolishing immigration prison systems and I'm absolutely eradicating them. Is it possible? Mm -hmm. we, we, we touched during this conversation on a lot of issues such as revenue, such as private companies, such as the whole politics um, beneath this issue and all of the, uh, how, how it is entangled with so many variables. Do you think it's possible that we can abolish the system? I think it's uh, certainly possible. I don't think it's possible to do that today or tomorrow. I don't think it's possible to do that while Trump is in the White House um, or, or Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. Um, but I do think that if we built the immigration prison system that we have right now in my own lifetime, then yeah, it is possible to, to destroy it, right? To, uh, and to create something different instead. Um, you know, and I offer some, some proposals in, 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 in the book about Uh, ways ways that are going to get us in uh, or policies that are going to move us in that direction. Um, not because I know every step of the way from half a million people locked up every year to zero. Mm -hmm. um, but because, um, because I know what happens if we're not moving in that direction, right? What happens is that we, we keep doing what we're doing right now. Um, so if, if, if the, if the Eisenhower administration in the 1950s, in the middle of, in the beginnings of the cold war could could had the courage to say we are going to do things in a radically different way than how we have been doing them in the past then i don't see why in 2020 we can't um, muster the same courage and say it's time to do something radically different and i hope that in the concluding chapter through the concluding chapter of Magnum into prison we can encourage and we can inspire um, readers to to have the courage to start thinking seriously about moving in that direction along with me. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And that's certainly the best way to finish this conversation, which was amazing. Professor, is there anything else you want to add right now? Where should, where can we find you? Is there any websites? Um... Yeah, I am. Um, you can, you can find more of, uh, about my work at crimmigration.com. That's my website, crimmigration.com. Um, for people in, in, in the United States, I'll be traveling around the United States starting um, next week um, in, in Washington, D.C. 
um, speaking about about the book. Um, the website also um, um, has uh, compiled a lot of my writings there, and um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. So you can find more about me there, and you can get Migrating to Prison: America's Obsession Walking Up Immigrants uh, on Amazon. And uh, unfortunately, it's it's only in English right now, but uh, you know, there's 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 reason to be hopeful. Yeah, definitely. And also on Audible, which I mentioned before. Great. And on Audible, yes. Yeah, it's a yeah. great listen. And thank you so much for, for doing this. I will add everything on the bio for, for people to, to reach out to you and also to buy your book, which as I, it is pretty evident for this conversation that is quite um, an issue that we can't touch all of the corners of this issue and all of the specifics on a conversation, on one hour conversation where it's worth reading it thoroughly to be informed. And I really appreciate you taking the time and we'll, we'll keep in touch. Thank you. It was a pleasure being on here, Alex. Thank you. Take care. Bye. If you find this conversation insightful, consider subscribing to the podcast at any podcast feed you use and share it with a friend. We truly appreciate your support.